0: I'm going to encourage you, church, to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We have made our way through the book of Ephesians and find ourselves this morning beginning Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in chapter 5 for a couple of weeks, Um, but you can make your way there now. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning, and that'll be our guide through God's Word. The answers will be on the screen behind me, but... um, One of the things we're going to see this morning, one of the realities that we need to kind of, you know, make sure that we have a full grasp of is that we tend to be creatures of imitation. We see something we like, someone that inspires us, a method that would make our life easier, and we have to imitate it. We have to incorporate it into being a part of who we are or to a part of our daily routine. Take a look at any yearbook from the 80s and you'll see what I'm talking about as the hair almost extends past the frame of the picture, right? But really, when you look across society, look across history, you'll find countless examples of imitation being a core tenet of explaining people's actions and more because we are wired for imitation. It is is an innate part of who we are. We are wired to be imitators. On the one hand, this can cause the sharing of ideas and trends to bring people together. On the other hand, it leads to groupthink and blind loyalty. On a deeper level, imitation reveals, as I said, something innate to our being. That we are created to imitate and reflect our creator. However, as with most things, this has been distorted by the fall. So now, rather than reflecting the attributes of our Creator, we perpetuate different things. We imitate different things that we see in the world. As small and inconspicuous as tacky clothing trends or big hairstyles, or worse, sinful fallen attributes. And so this morning, we'll be challenged with the exhortation from Paul to the church at Ephesus to imitate our Creator and the implications of such a challenge. So I'll encourage you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from our, this morning's text, which is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, and off, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, as we come before your word and and attempt to take this, this big chunk and really thoroughly examine it, and see and allow it to examine us. I pray that it would take this light that we see referenced here and that it would shine to the deepest corners of our heart and reveal anything in us where we are imitating this world. God, and as you purify us and you make us clean and you sanctify us, I pray that you would mold us into your workmanship as imitators of you and reflections of you and your attributes to the world around us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated this morning. So, as we began chapter four, just kind of some brief recap, kind of building up to where we are now. As we began chapter four, we began walking on this path of sanctification. This path of sanctification, this began with Paul's urging to walk in a worthy manner there at the beginning of chapter 4. And as Paul urged the church to walk in a worthy manner, he has shown how all the doctrine which he so beautifully espoused in the first three chapters directly influences then how we outwardly live our lives and the decisions we make, the character we reflect, the lifestyles that we pursue. And the first step which Paul laid out on this path of a worthy walk is that of Christ-like unity. We see that there in the, the beginnings of chapter four, that our unity in, is, is distinctly tied to the worthiness of our walk in Christ. as how are we treating one another? How are we walking together? How are we encouraging and exhorting one another? The second step which Paul lays out on that path of a worthy walk, and these are not in a hierarchy of order. They're just the order in which they appear in the text. So the second step which Paul lays out on the path of a worthy walk is that of Christ-like holiness. We spent the last couple of weeks going over that and thoroughly looking at and examining this call to the new life, this challenge to walk in holiness through submission to the Spirit's working in our lives. And so now we shift gears here. We ended last week, we saw that, that um, pattern that Paul used of, of using a negative command and a positive command and then the results of that command. And we begin somewhat with that same pattern here in verse one of chapter five. But this word, therefore, there at the beginning of chapter five kind of indicates a shifting of idea and a focus. So we read it again, verse one. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so there again is our favorite word of biblical interpretation, biblical study, that word therefore. This is common throughout all Paul's writing. And then maybe you're noticing, particularly as we move through the series, just how common it is even in the book of Ephesians. But therefore, so now in this instance, we're beginning Uh, We're being, excuse me, rather, we're being with this word, therefore, we're being pointed all the way back to Paul's initial statement in chapter four, verse one, that urging to walk in a worthy manner, to walk worthy of the call. And this, of course, means that it also is developed from the instruction that comes after that. So, because therefore always points us back to see what it's there for. And because what is coming right before that is building off of what's before that, and what's before that is the statement of walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as this builds on each other, this idea, these steps on the path of a worthy walk, of walking united, walking holy. Well now we have a new step as we're pursuing holiness as we're walking united we have put off the old self we've put on the new self as we show the attributes of chapter 4 verse 32 of being kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you being kind compassionate tender hearted forgiving With Christ as our example, we reflect Christ-like character. So now we're told that this results in developing into imitators of God. That as we walk on this path of sanctification, as we walk uh, united, as we walk holy and are made holy, that we develop into imitators of God. This brings me to my first point this morning, that walking in Christ-like unity and pursuing Christ-like holiness properly forms us into imitators of God. As this is the point, to reflect the character and attributes of our Creator. When we as His church properly reflect the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, while also reflecting the holiness to which we've been called through submission to the Spirit's work, then we become proper reflections, therefore, of the love, character, and nature of God to the world around us and to one another. Not only are we told to be imitators of God, but we're given express instruction on what the posture of our imitation is supposed to be. We're not to imitate God as students, begrudgingly imitating an instructor and performing some subject. We're not to imitate God as if we're slaves forced to mimic the commands of a master. Now, what illustration does Paul use for our posture of imitation? He compels us to imitate God as beloved children. Now, why might that distinction of beloved be so important? Let's start with that because we'll, we'll get to children, but we'll, let's break down why, why is that distinction of beloved so important? To properly be an imitator of God, we must be like a child who has received all the provision, love, nurture, and care of a gracious father. But this designation of beloved carries with it even more weight than that because we know going back to chapter 1, here of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we see, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That we have the the template for being beloved because of the gospel. That the gospel gives us the explanation, the definition of love. That in love, God has made himself known to us and called us according to his purposes that we may be holy and blameless before him. That in love, he predestined us through, uh, as sons through Christ. That Christ's example of of God's love, hanging on the cross, paying the price for our holiness, making a way where there was no way. To be an imitator of God, we must wholeheartedly attain to his word as the sole authority in our lives. We must tightly cling to scripture as being wholly sufficient to speak into every facet of our lives. To correct and rebuke every facet of our lives. And to hold authority over every facet of our lives. So in being imitators, we're to be beloved children. We had Brandon come up here a while ago and showing that, that sheepishness, which he so rarely shows. He, that is one, one man who does not lack for confidence. But as children, we are to take on that posture as beloved children. Imitators are those who watch closely, meticulously mimic, and cheerfully change. Children who have felt all the provision, love, and nurture and care of a loving father, these are the attributes. This is how they closely watch. We all know we, in our experiences as children or with children how we oftentimes see our children mimic us and oftentimes mimic the things we don't want them to mimic or remember the things we don't want them to remember. But as beloved children, we watch closely, meticulously mimic, and cheerfully change. Now that last part is the key. To cheerfully change that which we aren't doing that mimics our father and to then make that into, make ourselves into imitators. Well, where can we know of God? We can only know of God as he has revealed himself. Where can we closely watch God and and meticulously learn how to mimic his attributes and then therefore cheerfully change through the spirits working our lives? Where can we know this? We can only know of God as he's revealed himself and he has provided revelation of himself in his word. This is where we stare deeply into the character of God. This is where we learn carefully the attributes, the plans, the purposes, the ways, the law of God that we might know him and more closely imitate and reflect his goodness and love. In his word. This is where we deeply stare into the heart of our Father, and then we therefore become imitators of God. We move on to verse 2. Because as we see, as we stare deeply into Scripture, we learn greatly of God's goodness and love toward us. And this is where Paul continues, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So now that he has commanded them to be imitators of God, just as children who are deeply loved, the first thing which he gives them as an attribute to be imitated is love but not just the superficial and distorted love of this world. He doesn't doesn't say walk in love, be love, do love. He doesn't say love. He points them to the very example of love that they are supposed to follow. The very example of love where we see God's love displayed for us in its ultimate form. So in other words, as those who are deeply loved children, imitate the very thing which you have experienced in overwhelming quantity in the gospel. The love of God displayed in Christ. Specifically, the self-sacrificial love of Christ. This brings me to the next point on your outline this morning, which is that the primary attribute which imitators reflect Is self-sacrificial love. As the first place where Paul points, after exhorting them to be imitators of God as beloved children, is walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. The first place Paul points is to the cross. We are to love God and love one another so deeply that our regard for self goes completely out the window. You see, the challenge for us in this church is that our flesh is so self-centered that living like this becomes a daily battle. The longer I've been in Christ, the more battle-hardened I have become. This is our testimony. And I don't mean battles with non-believers or grumpy, self-proclaimed Christians, right? Like, there's sometimes I meet someone who's supposed to be a believer and I just wonder, like, how can you be regenerate and be so grumpy, right? But I digress. All right, so that our battles are not with non-believers or self-proclaimed Christians. The battles that we have to be ready to fight constantly are within. And here's why I want to point this out. There's that sub-point there, that self-sacrificial love does not sacrifice righteousness. Self-sacrificial love does not sacrifice righteousness. And here's what I mean by that, is that too often nowadays we will see professing Christians sacrifice the truth of Scripture in the name of wanting to be loving. And that is a dangerous place to be. We'll say, well, Well, I don't really want to speak out against this or that, abortion, homosexuality, gender identity, pornography, gluttony, lack of stewardship, worship attendance, or this or that, whatever the sin is. I don't want to speak out against any of that. I just want to show Christ's love or I can't bring myself to confront the sin of my brother or sister because that, that wouldn't be loving. That, again, let me say, is a dangerous place to be because the gospel gives us an example of true love. And this is the example that Paul points to, to walk and to be imitators of God as beloved children. The gospel gives us an example of true love, true self-sacrificial love in the person of Christ. So yes, we are to be loving. Yes, we are to walk in love. But the example of love, the very example of love which the gospel provides us with is that the loving sacrifice of Christ was necessary in order to make us righteous before a just and holy God. The self-sacrificial love of the gospel does not sacrifice righteousness It requires it. And if you don't believe me, we can keep reading. Verse 3. So he gives us the example, and then now he gives us the the negative, the adverse example. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Of where self-sacrificial love points us. And that is to continual accountability. Take note of how all the actions listed here are worldly, fleshly distortions of things that God has graciously given us to reflect our love. And more importantly, to reflect His love. We have sexual immorality, distortion of God's good gift. We have impurity and covetousness, distortions of God's gifting of grace to give us things that we would then therefore covet what God has given others. It's a distortion. Must not even be named among you, Paul says, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So our hearts are to be in a constant place of thanks to Christ in God, that he would give us this ability to know him, to to be known by him, and to reflect and to be imitators of him. This is the scheme of the deceiver, to use the sinful brokenness of this world not to completely change or tear apart those good gifts of God's grace, but to just slightly distort them. To slightly distort them so that while being sinful, they don't appear to be so bad. So that then it's easy for us to justify our actions. Because it's so close to, to the thing that God has given us. So, you know, you'll hear the, you'll hear the, the excuses or the justifications. And if God gave me these desires, how could it be sinful? If God did this, then how could it be sinful? If God made me this way, how could it be sinful? Be mindful of the subtle distortions of the enemy. Because for many, they are subtly leading straight to hell. See, Paul brings this point up. It's the next point on our outline, that those who do not reflect Christ-like character are not citizens of his kingdom. And this is the reality that we have to grapple with as we seek to be imitators. Those who willingly live such lives and reject God have no place in His kingdom. Those who live in willful and wanton rebellion against God and His standard have no place in His kingdom. And so... Here's the thing. You tell me what's more loving, to remain silent in the name of love and allow someone to live in rebellion against God or to speak the truth in love and point that person to the cross. If this language of kingdom citizenship here sounds familiar, it's because Ephesians is overflowing with it. To realize that our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, it motivates us to live, act, breathe, walk differently. Going all the way back to chapter 1. Again, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, That we should be holy and blameless. So you're seeing the dichotomy that's being set. He has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless. Therefore, we had to change from being not holy and blameless to being holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So he has adopted us into the family to receive the inheritance, the birthright of the firstborn son. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Or skip ahead to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, so you were of a different nationality, different ethnicity, you're cut off from the kingdom. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near to By the blood of Christ. So, our citizenship, our passport read Gentile of this world, separated from the kingdom of God. And then, through the blood of Christ, we received new citizenship as part of his kingdom. Verse 17 of chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit. To the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This kingdom citizenship language is clear that there's a dichotomy between those who reflect the character and attributes and are citizens of God's kingdom and those who are citizens of this world. Our character and lifestyle are clear identifiers of our citizenship. If our character lines up with the ways and means of this world, then our citizenship is most likely of this world. But if our character lines up with the standard of Scripture, then our citizenship is not of this world. We cannot be identified with Christ and simultaneously identified with this world and the old self. This is the continual message of Ephesians. You are in Christ, and you are in the new life, putting off the old self, or you are still wearing the old self. We continue reading verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So again, we have another dichotomy being set here. That if you are in this world of this kingdom, you are in darkness. If you are not in Christ, but if you are in Christ, you are light in the Lord. And what's the exhortation that comes after that? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light. So there we see again that walking as children of light, walking in Christ produces different fruit than what is produced in walking according to the citizenship of this world. Walking in darkness. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This brings us to our next point there on your outline, which is that imitators walk in the light of Christ. Imitators walk in the light of Christ. You see, light reveals, it highlights, it identifies. You can't hide. In light, but you can hide in darkness. See, the light of Christ brings us to the light of community, in which all have sinned and fall short of glory of God. So, therefore, we all know that we all struggle and fall short, and therefore we can lift each other up, bear one another's burdens. There's a phrase there which I want to highlight that's there at the end. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. But Master Yoda told me, do or do not, there is no try. (laughs) So when you've seen the true light of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, and that light has exposed and burned away the deepest, darkest corners of your heart, it becomes increasingly easy then to discern between light and darkness. How can we discern? The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Therefore, what is darkness is not. Well, where do we know what is good and right and true? God's word. To continue that analogy of light and darkness, I've told you many times one of my favorite stories growing up, still one of my favorite stories. I'm reading it to Blakely right now. Is The Hobbit. Right? So this will not be this is not my first nor will it be my last hobbit analogy. But so in the hobbit, the the adventurers, the crew of dwarves and the hobbit Bilbo, find themselves in this forest called Mirkwood. And it's so dark they they, they can't see the path, they're just kind of fumbling along the way. One of them almost falls into a river and gets swept away. It's the whole thing. So at one point Because they don't know, they're trying to find their way, they have to get through this forest to get where they're going. And so at one point they send Bilbo up a tree. It's the main character, and they they send him up a tree, and he peeks his head above the canopy of the forest, and he's blinded by the light. And this forest is is darkened because it it has the, the spirit of the dark Lord. So Bilbo pokes his head up above the tree line and he's blinded by the light and he sees all these beautiful butterflies. So down below, it was dark, there's these weird creatures, there's these black squirrels, all this weird stuff. But then above, outside of that, the light. And he saw that distinction. And lo and behold, Bilbo is the one that helps get them out and rescue them from that forest. So my point there is, is that as we begin to discern the light and we see the goodness of God in the gospel and that light shines in our heart, what in this world says is evil. See, the world doesn't like light because light reveals and brings truth. It makes you realize sinfulness and it brings that out to bear. Well, then when we realize the truth of the gospel, we're able to discern that no, light is good and healthy and right and true. Darkness is where suffering is found. So as we continue reading, verse 11. So try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So not only... Are we to not, we are to abstain and avoid the darkness, but as we realize and are able to discern what is the light, we are therefore then to actively participate in shining that light and exposing the darkness. He says, For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do, that those who do who are in darkness do in secret. Verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, that quotation there at the end is is not from an Old Testament passage. Not from one Old Testament passage, excuse me. Rather, it is from an amalgamation of several Old Testament passages. It's referencing from several places in Isaiah, 57, 51, 61, and Malachi chapter 3. So for Paul, this has clearly been God's providential purpose in shining this light, exposing the blind spots, the darkness of the world, that those who are his would walk, would not walk, rather, in the shameful distortions of this world, but would rather expose them and walk as imitators in the light of Christ. The ways of this world are unfruitful, proving, providing only temporary pleasure for what are eternal longings. Therefore, as imitators of God, we expose that which deceives and destroys in darkness. We expose it in our own hearts. We seek to have that light shine in the corners of our own hearts. And then as we become imitators, we shine that light to each other and to the world. And we point to the light which cleanses. And we point to the cross. Let's pray. God, we love you. I pray, Lord, that as we read this exhortation to be imitators as beloved children. That you would overwhelm us with the truth, the reality of your love for us in Christ with the love that is displayed on the cross. That you would give us strength and courage to be imitators, but to also actively expose the works of darkness. To expose the work of darkness in our own heart, To expose the works of darkness around us and in this world. That we may reflect, properly reflect, your attributes, your character, your goodness, your love, so that the world may see and know and discern the light from the darkness. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.